Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock, Managing Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. Now, today we're talking about the evolution of a property investor, a property investor that perhaps has one property or just about to start buying property. How do they transition from that first acquisition to a point where they have some financial freedom or some cash coming in that enables them to make choices on what they want to do with their life? And who better to ask the question than the man himself, Paul Glossop from Pure Property Investment, who's also the author of A Surfer's Guide to Property Investing. Now, surfing, I think, is a metaphor for freedom for this interview. And we talked to Paul about how you can start out. Are there price points that he would purchase at and price points that he wouldn't? You know, what are some of the considerations with cheaper properties? And how do you actually transition your portfolio from acquisition to the point of cash flow positive where you have that financial freedom. Paul shares some awesome tips on his journey and the work that he does with his clients that I'm sure you'll get something out of. Here's Paul. Paul Glossop, thanks for joining me on Geared for Growth. Mate, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to having you for for a while. And of course, you know, your reputation precedes you with your Surfer's Guide to Property Investing, obviously a very successful book that you wrote a couple of years ago. How has that kind of changed things for you? Is, is that something that people cite when they're getting in touch with you these days? Yeah, it definitely is. Um, yeah, it probably wasn't the intention, you know, way back when, sort of four or five years ago when I first started putting it together, it was about a 12-month mission to to document about 250-odd pages of, of a property investment journey. But um, I guess since then, yeah, because it, it has been something that that probably speaks to a lot of people in a lot of different stages of life, it's not necessarily uh, – I didn't write the book as a um, probably as a, a technical guide as to how to invest in property and sort of go from it step by step. It was more so saying here's where we start, here's the options that you have available, and here's ultimately what my objectives are. And what property investment had as far as my own goals and how it's sort of taken me to where I really want to get to and, and the values that come with, you know, getting to a particular point from a f- financial freedom standpoint and how property was, you know, it was my vehicle and how to get there. But there's been a lot of people who resonate with the story, which has been amazing. And we're actually up probably about three months into uh, version number two, which is essentially an updated guide and more so about, um, you know, the, the, the catch cries or surface guide to, to property investing, how to find the exit. So, how, uh, how if there's any surfers who are listening in, they'll probably get what I mean when I'm sort of talking about the metaphor of finding the exit as opposed to not necessarily just in property. But yeah, I think for me, it's a, it's an evolution book and, and I think everyone can pick out the parts that they relate to. And um, it's not just about the data, it's not just about property, but it's about sort of everything that goes with why most of us invest in property, which is you know, essentially to find some sort of, I guess, uh, some sort of reason and rhyme to, to financial independence and do with our lives what we really want to do. I love that because this is really the focus for the topic today is the evolution of a property investor. So, you know, you've dropped into a wave, spent some time in the blue room. Obviously, you've got to pick that exit. You can tell I'm from the country and never really. <laughs> I, I grew I grew up driving a posty bike in irrigation canals, and every now and then we would, uh, we would pull a rope behind it with standing yeah. on the board. But uh, I don't think that counts. But you don't have to be a surfer to enjoy the book, right? I mean, surfing is is more of a metaphor for freedom. So for you, you know, you wanted financial freedom to go and surf, to 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 spend time with your family, to to give back to the community. So surfing's just kind of your metaphor for the journey, right? 
Absolutely. And I think we can all probably resonate with that pretty clearly is that, you know, if we had the um, the ability to say, look, I wake up in the morning and my first uh, objective is not necessarily to figure out you know, how I'm going to make the, the amount of money I need to to get to a particular financial p- position. Ultimately, if we get to the point where property can deliver what it needs to deliver to then wake up in the morning or set your plans for the next week, set the next month, next year to say, look, my goal this week is to spend X amount of time with my kids or X amount of time with friends or make sure we're, we're you know, divulging further into you know, pastimes that might be given back to the community, all those things which most of us in any way, shape or form probably have desires to do more of than we currently currently do. Um, I think the surfing, absolutely for me, I love surfing as well. So, yeah, for me, finding time to put that into my weekly calendar is is pretty much a non-negotiable. But, you know, for me, it's sort of trying to figure out things that make you a better human. And typically by being a better human, uh, I find that you, you end up being far better at all the other things you do with life, be it, uh, be it a husband, be it a father, be it a friend, be it a, a son to my mum, you know, all the other things that go with it. Mm. Yeah, and I guess you know the 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 stress and and the strain of of paying the mortgage or you know paying for the bills is something that's going to detract from all of that. And you've been able to achieve that financial freedom. And for people that um, maybe haven't come across you before, you know, typically your your model, for want of a better term, is is mm. established properties anywhere from the sort of the three hundred k to three million dollar mark. For for the people that are starting out in their property journey so if we're talking about the evolution you have to start somewhere and and you're saying that there are deals around that $300,000 mark today where people can actually get into investing from perhaps a lot cheaper than what they thought they could absolutely and i think that's probably the biggest challenge is that the vast majority of property investors and and also just people in australia live on the eastern seaboard and predominantly whether it's sydney whether it's melbourne or potentially brisbane that's the bulk of our population and if you dig a bit deeper into Sydney and Melbourne in particular and you're trying to find a, a freestanding established house at $300,000, you're essentially going to be looking for a very long time because unfortunately they don't exist anymore. But the reality, I think, is that that there are certainly markets right across Australia right now. And I'm not talking far out regional markets, which are, you know, for lack of a better term, one pub towns. Um, these are markets with robust, you know, one, two million population within half an hour, 45 minutes to major employment hubs, lifestyle centres, school catchments, universities, hospitals, all those things that you want to look for for established long-term growth. Um, yeah, we work with with property investors and I actually just worked over the last probably four or five months putting together a Fast 50 guide, which, which effectively looks at markets across Australia, the top 50 markets, which we assess at Pure Property Investment that are, are looking like they're going to be the best markets for growth over the next 24 months. Um, and, you know, there's a number of markets. I can, I can speak of one, Armadale in, in WA or Perth. Uh, again, it's an entry-level market, but again, 40, 40 minutes from Perth CBD, um, average house price in, in Armadale right now, $305,000, um, yield of about 6%. Average uh, annual growth is quite low. Last 12 months growth is about 11%. And, you know, I don't want to go too much straight into to data and solutions. But my point with that is that if you, if you look and you know what you're looking for rather and you sort of have a budget that's constrained, um, it's not to suggest to say, hey, look, if you're sitting there thinking I can only get my hands on three or $400,000 to kick it off, the, the solution isn't to say, hey, you need to sit back on the sidelines for another three to five years to get some more money together or earn some more so you've got a bigger borrowing capacity. It's essentially saying start with what you can work within and then try to find solutions there as opposed to think, well, I don't have solutions in that budget, so I, I guess I might as well just sit back and be one of those naysayers who say it was just it's far too out of reach for the, for the average 20-something or 30-something-year-old. 
Mm. I love that. We've have, have actually had guests before that said, you know, if you don't have five, six, seven hundred thousand dollars, their advice is come back when you do. Um, mm. so it, it's nice to hear from someone that says, look, you, you don't have to have that amount of money. Our data is telling us that the average person spends about $689,000 on an investment property, but a proportion of those, around about a quarter, are actually buying something that what they will occupy later on. So the real number mm. could be a little bit a little bit less than that. But it's nice to know that, you know, we're talking about the evolution of a property investor. You can get in the market at, at that at that point but what sort of sacrifices are you making at that price point that you wouldn't be at say 800,000 are you sacrificing potential upside capital growth um, presumably you're not sacrificing uh your your yield but are we are, are there more risks with the quality of tenant mm. or maintenance how would you categorize the risks in that yeah, it's a really interesting one i think from my side of things is probably a couple of things that you certainly you're very rarely going to be sacrificing gross yield when you're dropping down the price point. And that's a pretty obvious calculation. I don't want to sort of dig too much into that. I think some of the, the misnomers that I personally think exist in, in the property market in general is that you drop down to a particular price point or you enter into a particular area and all of a sudden your calibre of tenant. And you know that's a very subjective way that I think people look at it. And maybe sometimes people use it against you know having to invest or wanting to invest in a particular area. But the data side of things on a calibre of tenant versus what they actually do to your property that costs you X amount on an annual basis or over a 10-year period. That's something that I've personally never seen any data to suggest if you own a property in this market versus a property in this market and one's de deemed to be entry-level, the other one's deemed to be blue chip. Show me the percentage of actual uh, annual running repairs that are higher due to the actual tenant or potentially vacancies or arrears in rent and a range of other things that might be perceived. So, I think for me, sometimes it's sort of dispelling some of those myths. When you look at it, you, you really need to understand you know, all the basics that, that go into it. But I think if you're, if we sort of get away from that for a second and don't go too deep into that component, I think the things typically, if you're sort of having to get in at three or 400 grand or even lower, because you know, I can speak to markets such as Devonport, Burnie, Launceston, that three or four or five years ago, we probably bought predominantly we bought a lot of property in those markets as a buyer's agency but i think we i could i could struggle to count on one hand how many properties above three hundred thousand we bought in those markets back then they're probably more in the the ones and twos um and you know those markets at the time were yielding six seven eight nine ten percent in some cases and and have done really well from a growth standpoint what you're sacrificing potentially is usually if you're going regional then obviously you're sacrificing the potential for long-term evolution or gentrification of those markets, which can lead from them going from a three hundred dollars to a $400,000 market, but probably more so how do they get from a three dollars or $400,000 market to a $900,000 to a $1 million market. They're the parts which sometimes become complicated, I think, if you're outside of a major capital city um, and you don't have those additional pressures on actual land value. For me, that's the big one, mm. is that if you go too regional or too far to the fringes, you push to the point of actually really pushing to the point of that land becoming not the the restricted component of the overall purchase. And for us, that's the part which we're always trying to balance is, yes, we've got a budget, but you always need to consider, say, if I'm buying a property that fits my budget, great. If the yield's there, that's great. But what's going to push the overall demand? And the demand's not necessarily just, hey, is it affordable and people can live there? But if that starts happening, how much available supply nearby, be it greenfields locations, changing to zoning, and, and potentially just overall 
um, things like population growth and overall demand from people moving into those markets to put up pressure. So I think that's one thing that people need to consider. A lot of the time, and you probably know this far more than I would from your end, Mike, is, is the reality is that a lot of the time those fringe markets also get dominated by big brand new developments. And when we're talking big brand new developments, you know, greenfield sites of 100, 200, 300, 1,000 plus properties that can enter a market in a one, two, three year period of time, mm. that extra supply that can be created in a quick fashion is sometimes a big, big component that you need to be very aware of because that's what's going to restrict your overall growth over the long term. Yeah. Uh, a lot of really good points there, Paul. And I love that sort of challenge on the data of that basically sort of says people with less money are m- more likely to to do criminal damage to a property. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I've never seen anything <laughs> like that. And I and I think that sort of does a bit of a disservice to a, a to a proportion of the of the country. And I, I probably would define myself as having been in that category for a period of time as well. Um absolutely likewise, mate. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's an interesting one that I think we could all um, do do well to analyze a little bit more. But yeah, I, I mm. guess that w- what I learned most most from that is that there are some some upside caps potentially to going from three hundred to a million dollar market, and that might require that gentrification happens, which is less likely to happen in say regional markets. But you're you're still kind of extolling the virtues of of getting in when you can at the price point you can, and perhaps the next investment where you can leverage that first one. That's where you can look for those ones that might be at that you know five or six hundred thousand dollar point that that do have a future in the millions. Would you say? Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic, I think, point in, into the whole aspect here is that I'm not suggesting that it's it's saying, hey, if you've got a budget of three to 400K and that's where you start, that that's not where you end up. Um, you know, for me, and I guess our, our philosophy from a, a buyer's agency and a property investment standpoint is is certainly not the person with the most amount of property wins the game. It's, it's certainly the person who gets to where they need to get to with the least amount of moving parts typically is the one who's going to get to that that ultimate objective far quicker and far more seamlessly. And that typically means they're saying, hey, look, we're looking to get the best outcome with the means that we have. But if we're starting with three or 400 grand as, as that first purchase, and I, I can work through a number of examples, but let's say hypothetically, you get the increase to $450,000 within a d- defined period of time, you have the ability to extract equity and your, your budget you know, from that next investment might increase with additional incomes, maybe double incomes, et cetera. And all of a sudden, you've got 600K to work with, as opposed to thinking, okay, I've got 600K, that looks like two $300,000 investments, and now all of a sudden, I go from one to three properties. We would really suggest that that is going to be the solution. And I think more so, it's to say, hey, look, you can usually get the same objectives or the same KPIs achieved within a five to 600K budget as you can with a three to 400K budget, be it yield, be it growth upside but you potentially can move into a slightly more premium market or potentially a market that might have a larger piece of land, potentially to add value, potentially to subdivide, potential to add cash flow from a granny flat, a range of other things that you just simply would be restricted on if you're in that three to 400K market. So for us, that is typically the way it works is that you start where you can, don't delay, but once you've got in and you can go again, that's when you consider saying, do you push the envelope and, and push harder and higher to a higher price point? And also... When in, in you know the, the amount of times we had that discussion about do you wait for a twenty percent deposit to be available or do you push the envelope a bit and say look I'm building the portfolio so I'm comfortable taking a bit more risk so let's go after a ninety percent lend pay the lenders mortgage insurance be a little bit more geared in the early stages and then over time you start to drop down that gearing to 
essentially go through the process of reducing your risk and your overall leverage and increasing your cash flow. That's typically the evolution that we see come out of most investors over that 5, 10, 15-year period. Awesome. I I couldn't help but sort of have a little cheeky thought in my mind when you were talking about we wouldn't recommend someone split 600 into two lots of 300 because that's kind of against what we hear in in podcasts and in the media. You know, I've got two properties, I've got three properties. Well, you yeah. know, you know, I'm better than you because I've got three and you've got only two, or I got ten in ten years, or my goal is to have yep. twenty with <laughs> no discussion about the value, or you know, you you could have three properties that could be better than thirty properties, right? That's it's such a it's such a pervasive thing in property investing. People sort of get bewitched over that. But would you just describe that as an ego metric we need to get past? Unequivocally, and uh, it, I, I couldn't count how many times clients or you know, potential future clients of ours, when I'm having initial client discussions with people who come and have a chat with us about setting that strategy, they do ask me the question, what does my portfolio look like? And they don't necessarily ask the question about, you know, what does it look like, value, cash flow, how did you exit the workforce, all those sort of questions, which you know, it's not necessarily what I intend to discuss. But this, typically that question comes and saying, how many properties do you own? And it's irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> The answer is irrelevant. Um, that, that part, and, and to your point further to that, I mean, unfortunately, I think people do like it. It's good clickbait. It's good fodder. And and it does get people to stare at a screen, you know, 30 properties in in three years or whatever it might be. And, you know, we, we, there's, there's no shortage of people who put their, uh, I guess, their company's uh, marketing spin based on those numbers. But it is pervasive. Ultimately, though, it's, it has very little bearing on what the outcome is. And I think to my earlier point, we're huge proponents to say the least amount of moving parts to get to the ultimate goal is really our job. And I talk myself out of business very regularly. As a buyer's agent, we charge a flat fee to buy a property. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it might sound a bit counterintuitive as a business owner to say, well, if you can split 600 into two properties and essentially make two fees out of a client, you should be thinking about that. Well, if for us, you know, the, the bulk of our clients are repeat clients are all referred from an existing client. And we know that if we want to have a business that is sustainable, we want to see clients of ours you know, really get good outcomes. And that's our job is to figure out where those outcomes are going to come over time and the rest of it will do its own work. Yeah, I love that. I think you know, if you if you're a business that's been around for for a long time in your industry, that's obvious that uh, you're you're putting the outcomes of the client before that revenue, right? The Give for Growth Property Investing podcast is presented by our business MCG Quantity Surveyors. If you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's it has to be that way, and, and you don't for well matters that there. Yeah, there's just the same ways you look at, it, but longevity is, is number one, and 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 ultimately it comes down to saying, well, what would I do? Um, and you know, one thing I'm very conscious of is you know, it, within our team we have we have nine staff members, every single one of them are property investors. I've got four buyers agents. They all have portfolios that are that are very robust, and they've built buying property and building their portfolios for over a decade. Each one of them, and that's one thing we've always made is that anyone we hire within our business has to be a property investor because otherwise we just find they they typically are doing it to to get a paycheck as opposed to really have skin in the game. Mm-hmm. But that's the big part is that you know, we want to make sure that if we're doing it, we're doing it for the right reasons and. 
you, you just know that that feel-good factor of it all, um, knowing that you're never going to go to sleep thinking that was the wrong choice or that's the wrong call or we're doing all this for the wrong reasons. It just never comes back to bite you. Mm. Yeah, I suppose I feel for the consumer, right, because someone will come to you because they want to be presumably a multi property uh, multi-property portfolio owner that they, they look at the surfing and they understand okay well you know maybe a better question for paul rather is mm. how question uh, how many properties does he have or how much does he surf right that, that's mm. a, a yeah, better yeah. indication of a metric of where they want to be people want that financial freedom so it, it's i can i can forgive people for asking that question but you know what is a better Great. question for them to ask rather than you know how big's your portfolio or how much passive income you have because that's something that i wouldn't want to share with a stranger um yeah. it's kind of like that it's almost a question that you sort of have to give to them to make them feel comfortable that you're the right fit completely and, and i think for me the, a really good question to ask and, and it's kind of in, in its own sort of i guess some not necessarily back to front but it but it's in its own sort of snake-like manner way when we have those initial conversations the the the, the part that we try to get to is okay well if i was in that person's position and i knew where they wanted to get to what would we recommend they do to get to where they want to get to and ultimately set that strategy? And that part is, for me, is key because where I started my investment journey, where you started your investment journey, where the next person's going to start theirs, are always going to be different points. They've got different incomes, different leverage points, different time constraints, different incomes they want to earn long term. They've got different perceptions as to where they want to get to and also what success looks like to them. And you have to then be quite flexible to say, well, I don't want necessarily people to some come to me and replicate what I've done, nor do I want them to replicate what someone else has done. I want to understand where they want to get to. And then for me, the best question is saying, well, you know, if you wanted to get to where you want to get to, you know, if, or someone asked me if, if, if I wanted to get to where they wanted to get to, how would I do it? And how would I reverse engineer it based on what we've done in the past and what we'd suggest we're going to do in the future? And in, 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 inadvertently to your point, but it, it's never going to end up being a solution of one property. And I do, you know, we did speak about, you know, the less moving parts, the better, yep. but it's never going to get there with one asset or very rarely would it be with one asset. It's typically going to be a staged out purchase plan but very rarely in that same token would I suggest that the plan needs to include probably more than four or five assets over the long term. And that would probably even be sold down to potentially two, three, maybe four assets would, would for the most part, for the vast majority of people, do the bulk of the heavy lifting over a 15, 20, 25-year journey. Well, that's good. Let, let's let's give you some hypothetical room to to flex that muscle. In in we've we've talked about perhaps buying in at 300 grand, looking at the next opportunity in, in more of a, a robust location that could have some gentrification. How, how do people get from the point of having one, two, three, maybe even four properties that are either negatively geared or they might only be partially positive? You know, if they're bringing in 20, $30,000 a year, that's not mm -hmm. necessarily freedom yet. How do you no. transition to that point where we get to go surfing? Yeah, good question. Um, the If we're hypothetically starting and we've got, let's say, a principal place of residence that, that might be owned and someone's looking to leverage off their home, as an example, and then start to build a portfolio, that's that's a very common one because the starting point is either I'm going to rent best or I've got my home, we've got a bit of equity and we want to get to a particular period of time, we'll get to a particular position in a particular period of time. Realistically, to get there, we usually have to say, hey, look, if we want to get to Financial independence and whatever that looks like, I would say usually 80 to 100 grand a year is, is going to be sort of having to be the starting point. If you want to have a choice of do you go to work 
Do you spend your time volunteering? Do you travel for a living? Whatever it might look like. I think you kind of really need that amount of money plus your accommodation, whatever your accommodation looks like, pretty much paid for. So no debt or essentially no rent, however that looks. To work backwards from that, that's usually going to be, you know, two, two and a half, three million dollars in gross assets, net assets rather, on a typically a four to five percent gross rental income, which is going to give you that sort of circa hundred, hundred and forty thousand dollars gross, take off some expenses, you're in that eighty to hundred thousand dollar income. So if we sort of say here's the end goal and sort of we need two to three million dollars in assets with no debt against them at about a four to five percent yield, for us is to say, how do we get there? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a, it's a pretty big mountain to climb. It's not exactly saying, hey, yeah, no problems. You buy four properties, they compound in growth over ten year period. You sell two, keep two, and the rest is all going to be worked out in the wash. Um, for us, it's it's usually saying, look, a the first part is that you you cannot sacrifice time. There is no shortcut to getting there. For us, if you're wanting us to 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 come to us and say, hey, look, here's the secret spot that everyone should be buying. You should buy ten properties here because it's going to triple in the next four years. Yeah, we, we certainly won't be giving any answers. That'll be, but anything close to that. And, and if anything, I'd be walking the opposite way at the moment I hear about you know, some secret hotspot per se. But I think for me, if you don't have a horizon that's probably more than 10 years, I personally would suggest don't invest in property because it just simply is not going to be enough time to get the bulk of at least one growth cycle. And when I say one growth cycle, you're t- typically talking that, that overall 7% annual compounded growth not to say that that's going to happen annually, but typically that's what you want to achieve. And that has to happen over a 10 to 14 year period based on the last 50 years worth of data. So invest for a 10 year period minimum. And if you have starting from ground zero, you need to be comfortable with debt early in the piece. And when I say comfortable with debt, your leverage has to be high. And the way that you accommodate the risk is typically by balancing the cash flow. And that's the part, the cash flow is, is dependent on your income because for me, I'm not necessarily going to suggest that everyone needs to find neutrally or positively geared properties because you might be on three, 400 grand combined household income, but you've got 50 to 80 grand disposable a year. So nursing is 20, 30, 40 grand a year negative component across three, four, five properties might not, might not actually be a bad idea because you factor in some depreciation, some negative gearing, all of a sudden you're you're back to a maybe a five, 10, 15 grand in your negative position. So if you're holding a negative, sorry, if you're holding an asset base that's quite well leveraged at the early stage, you've got a mindset of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, the reality is you're going to need those three, four, five properties, build them up over a period of time. And it's going to mean that you're not going to be paying off those assets. What it's going to mean is you're relying on capital growth across the base. And you're probably going to have a couple of properties that will be sold off or reducing the debt on the remaining portfolio. And that remaining portfolio is the properties that ideally are typically going to be the ones that are high cash flow, potentially value add, whether it's, you know, might be as simple as, as a granny flat to add cash flow, it might be a subdivision you can add an extra income, extra equity to. But it's usually going to mean that there's two, three, possibly four assets you hold. Likely over the long term, it's one or two assets that you're going to sell over that sort of 15, 20 year period. So the things that I, you know, as I'm speaking, the things that I know that are really relevant, 10 years, I say, is a minimum for the growth. But if you're going to be investing with the intention to get to 100 grand a year passive income, you need to get leveraged, you need to balance your cash flows, and you need to have probably a 20-year horizon. So, you know, working backwards, if you want to be going surfing for a living, um, you know, if you're, if you're age of 30 now, get busy because by age 50, you should be able to achieve that if, you, if it's done correctly. If you're 40, set your horizon to say 60. The big thing that I haven't talked about as well, which most people don't necessarily consider 
Um, a, you've got super, and let's take that off the table. Let's say that's ring fenced, and that's going to do what it's it's designed to do. But the vast majority of people who do buy their own home, I'm, I'm a test to it as well. I've got my own home. That's my forever home now. Will this be for my forever home for my wife and I when our kids fly the coop in 15, 20 years? Likely not. It's too big. It's not going to suit our need, but it's probably worth more than what I'll need as my purchase after that. So I've got a chunk of money that I can then take tax-free to then go and offset this other asset base that I've got. And then all of a sudden, that's another way to make sure that, that asset base becomes highly cash flow positive and can feather my nest, so to speak, as far as delivering me an income later in life. That's a really interesting one because you know the, the principal place of residence tends to be of a higher value than your portfolio would be because that's where you where you live, right? You want it to be nice. Exactly. Of course, you know, a downsizer, the clue is in the name, right? You go smaller mm. because you're not going to need, you know, four or five bedroom home with, you know, two living areas or and a rumpus of that sort of thing. So that's a yep. potential to put that cash, not not just into the downsizer, but, you know, paying off some of the debt on that portfolio. So when it, let's say we're at that sort of four or five uh, property mark and we're considering selling off a couple to bring the debt down so we can really start to see some positive cash flow. Is that something typically people will only do in retirement or is that something that you can choose to do at any point in time? Let's say you are 40 years old and you've been doing this since you're 25, 30. It's just a question of, well, when do you want that financial freedom? But I'm guessing mm. that puts a cap on the potential upside from there, right? Because if you're selling interest in property, your future growth would be less, but you're bringing the freedom forward. Is that right? It's so, so accurate there. And I think that's the key is it depends when you start. But if you are if you started at age 25, 28, and you're maybe early 40s now, and you sort of think, well, I've got this property portfolio, I've got a lot of equity in it. I'm thinking, well, is this a crossroads? Do I keep adding to it and, and make that end result much bigger? But you know, delay that gratification further. And if you've been doing it for 15 years, you've, you've done well to hold that that long anyway. Um, I, c- I can speak to a client that I actually caught up with yesterday who we've bought four properties over the last seven years with them. They've got their own home. I think they've got now technically about $17,000 in debt on their own home fully offset. They've got four assets across Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. Um, those properties are worth about $1.8 million gross. Their debt on those properties is about $900,000. They've seen about 60-odd percent uh, in, in growth over that, that five, six, seven years since they've owned them. Um, they've obviously leveraged their equity from their principal place of residence to get started. Um, but now they're considering, on the back of these interest rate rises, they're, they're mid-40s. They've got a good wedge in super. They kind of don't want to work to 65. And they're sort of saying, oh, look, ideally, the wife wanted to go part-time in the next couple of years. The portfolio is slightly positive, positively geared by about 20, 25 grand a year at the moment. They ideally need to get about 40, 45 grand to make that decision to go part-time. The decision is they're going to sell the Adelaide asset. Um, the Adelaide asset was probably had some decent growth, but the cash flow was never going to be more than a very mundane sort of three-ish percent gross rental yield. So they're going to take that off the table. They're going to take that two hundred odd thousand dollars that they get from that uh, from that sale. They've held that property for the longest, about six or seven years. But that's then going to bring down their overall debt profile, bring up their cash flow position. They're not going to add to their portfolio any further. But that is a, a solution that comes into the fold a lot early, earlier than, than technical retirement. You know, they've got two teenage kids and still in the prime of their life at, at mid-40s, but they want to make the most of it. You know, They don't want to be saying, we'll work another 20 years so we have lots more money. They're saying the money and the position we've got is good enough. Let's try to make the most of what we've got now. 
So that's where rather than the hot spotting, and I, I must say I am very disappointed I'm not going to get that clickbait article <laughs> where Paul Glossop says buy 10 properties and you'll be set for life. Um, but it really comes down to what you actually want. So what do you want to get out of property investing? What you what do you want your life to be? So, you know, do you want to build a $100 million portfolio just because you want to say that you've got it? Or do you want to retire in your 40s because – you you know you want to do whatever it is you want to do so mm. is that something that you help people with when you're onboarding because i'm presuming a lot of people just come to you and they say i want to be a property investor because well i think that's probably a good idea financially but ma- maybe not having much more substance or plan than that bingo like that that's and most people start there and, and you know you've got to start somewhere obviously but you you've sort of realized that there's usually two ways to make additional wealth in, in life in, in, in the world is that one of which is potentially equities or I'll probably add in being a, potentially starting a business or something to that effect might fall in that category as well. It's obviously got some downside risk to it in addition to the upside. But then the, the most tried and trusted is, is property. So people realise that this is a way that people make money over the long term, um, but not necessarily knowing how do I get there, where do I, where do I start, even yeah, how do I structure loans, all the basic fundamental components. So that is always going to be where we start is that let's let's devise a plan let's not worry about going to a solution and the solution is going to be different depending on what the plan looks like and and that's the big one is that I, i'm really reluctant to to tell anyone to say go buy properties here or there because i i can attest to the fact that we're buying properties in four states right now and you know we open this conversation by saying between three hundred thousand dollars and three million dollars and i can guarantee none of those properties in that bracket are for the same client. They're simply going to be for different clients at different stages. And yeah. that's always going to be the case. So so that is the part. We, we you, and, and don't feel like you need to rush that part because property simply does not move as quickly as most people like to say it does. You know, even if markets are booming, they might move a couple of percent in a month on, at the best and best of best of times. And they might go down a couple of percent at the worst of times. So, you know, compared to places like the, you know, the, the bonds and equities markets, you can be quite pragmatic. Take an extra four weeks to set up a plan. Take an extra month to get your finances set set up correctly. Even have a good chat with a, a property-focused accountant just to make sure that you've asked all the questions for the structures just before you go put pen to paper on something because the property itself is, is always going to be the last part of the, the overall plan and the overall solution. I love that, Paul, and there's an absolute ton for people to unpack in that. Thanks for sharing your time and uh, and that investment goal today. You're very welcome, mate. Fantastic. And thank you again for having me. Of course. Cheers.